0: Hello and welcome to this download from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Zimbabwean writer Petina Gappa. Petina's debut collection of short stories, An Elegy for Easterly, had already generated considerable excitement pre-publication. James Lasden, for example, writing in The Guardian, praised it for its swiftness and lightness, and found in one tale a wild, cracked gallows humour reminiscent of Chekhov's peasant stories. When we met, we talked about that humour – and how the writer can begin to do justice to the realities of Mugabe, Zimbabwe. But first, I wanted to know more about Patina's early life.
1: I was born in Zambia to Rhodesian at that time, Rhodesian parents. Uh, I was born in 1971. My father was working in Kitwe, which is on the the Copper Belt, but he wasn't a miner. Uh, He was working in Kitwe, and he and my mother moved there, and I was born there, but we only lived there for about nine months. We moved back to Rhodesia. And so I grew up in Rhodesia and in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia and in Zimbabwe.
0: So you've kind of seen all those transitions go through and experienced them while you were young.
1: Exactly. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so fortunate as a writer, because I remember very vividly the day Muzorewa came to where we lived in, in the township of Glenora to campaign as the first prime minister of Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. And then I remember, just almost a year later, there were new elections, which Robert Gabriel and Mugabe won. And I actually remember, again, him coming to campaign in in the in the township where we lived. And of course, after that, we've had 28 years of of the same regime. So yes, I've been very fortunate to have been present during you know these different changes, even though I was a very young child at the time. And in that respect, I am actually a lot more fortunate than a number of Zimbabweans who've known only one leader you know you can imagine if you're 28 years old or if you're 25 years old you've only known one president you know all, almost all your life.
0: You said you've been fortunate but did you experience it then in your younger years as as good fortune or did you sort of sense that things were changing how, how, how did it sort of seem to you when you were living through these things?
1: Well I, I say I'm fortunate because I'm speaking now as a writer who's very interested in mm. history At the time, of course, when I was a child, I just didn't realize what a gift this was going to be later on. But now that I'm I'm a writer who was really interested in the history of my country, I actually realize that I'm in a very privileged position.
0: In the book, Mm. there are quite a lot of young people and experiences of growing up. And I wondered what kind of of education you had yourself.
1: That's actually a very interesting question because the experiences of all the young children in my book are experiences that I have had. I was educated in my first year of primary school at a segregated school in Rhodesia. It was a, it was called a Group B school. It was only for African children. And then in 1981, my parents moved us to a white area where we were one of three black families in our road. And at school, I was one of four black children in a class of 20. And remember, I'd left a class of about, you know, 40 people. So then I had that experience as well of being an outsider in, you know, in my own country and being of, you know, looking like an alien because everybody else around me was white. Then I had this weird experience of losing Shona, losing my language, because we were not allowed to speak in Shona, So we, we spoke only in English. And as a result, our own language sort of atrophied. And then I had the brutal experience of being taken from that environment to a mission school which you know, is where people like Robert Mugabe were educated. These this were the uh, you know African schools for children of sort of parents of who were not all that well off. So I went to a mission school because my dad thought that it was the best school academically for me. And as it turned out, he was right. But there I had the problem that now I had to get back my language. And uh, it, it was pretty brutal because people didn't understand why a child from, you know, a child who was Shona could not speak. Speak Shona well so I worked really hard at my Shona
0: language was one thing that I really wanted to ask you yeah. about and I was interested to know what your your own kind of linguistic history was because yeah. your English is peppered with expressions from Shona and so I wondered what kind of feelings you had about those two languages that are that are clearly very much part of your identity
1: yeah I think for for every Zimbabwean language, you know, it's central to our identity because we are kind of schizophrenic in that sense that we express ourselves in our own languages whether it's Shona or Ondao, or Ndao or Kore Kore but at the same time we have this official language that was imposed on us and yet it's ours you know English is our language I, I no longer and I don't think I've ever felt that English was foreign to me Maybe, you know, in my first year of primary school when English had a sort of a secondary role in my life, maybe it was an alien language, but because it's been such a part of my life, you know, university, when I went to university to do law, you know, we studied in English. Um, you pick up the newspaper, it's in English, television is in English. It's it's become part of our, of our language. And in fact, there's something called Shonglish. And one of the it's sort of a mixture of Shona and English, and also in the English, in the valley mm-hmm. and English. And one of the ta- one of the stories in this book is called "My Cousin Sister Rambanai." Now, cousin sister is a very Shonglish expression, mm-hmm. because cousin is English, sister is a Shona concept. So, if you want to marry the two, my cousin sister, meaning the child of your paternal uncle, mm-hmm. that is Shonglish. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's how that's how Zimbabweans negotiate the English. There's a lot of. Um, there's there's a lot of mixing there's a lot of moving of one concept into another language and so on and I I think it makes for a very interesting for a very interesting sort of linguistic culture Mm.
0: and in terms of your writing most people will encounter lots of words they don't understand and at first they might think this is a barrier but in fact I felt as a reader if you go with it and get into it. You, you can you can understand the the gist of what people are saying or the context in which they're saying it. And it's more than just a kind of sort of seasoning of of exoticism. It seemed to me. it seemed, I mean, you can tell me if I'm right. But it seemed to me this is probably in your head. The, these are the kind of ways you're hearing things and it's not, not something you're having to sort of slot into an English narrative.
1: Exactly, that's exactly what it is. It's it's how you see the world. I mean, language is after all, a key to sort of seeing it to, to a particular worldview. And this is, this is how I see the world. This is how the average sees the world. You see the world in both languages. And I have to say that when I was writing this book, I thought a great deal about this question you asked me about whether the Shona or the Ndebele would be a barrier. To the person reading it, and I was greatly inspired by Vikram Chandra, his *Sacred Games*. He makes absolutely no concessions to the non-Indian speaker. You know, he makes to the non-Hindi speaker. He makes he makes absolutely no concessions. And then there's a, a writer I admire very much, Chimamanda Adichie from Nigeria. And it's actually from her that I, I got this way of. Um, writing Shona words into a sentence oh. in a way that makes it very clear what the meaning is so that, you know, you don't, Im- you don't impose that barrier. You present the, the sentence as it appears to the person who's thinking it or speaking it, but at the same time is perfectly clear and comprehensible to the person who's reading it.
0: I wondered if in the way you had to be away from Zimbabwe in order to get some perspective on it, in order to write about it, or could you have written this book if you were still living in Zimbabwe?
1: I'm not so sure. There are many things that I I lose from being in Zimbabwe, but I think, you know, you, you're right. I mean, it, it's certainly true that uh, being in Zimbabwe probably gave me sort of a, a little bit more freedom to actually look at the situation more objectively than if I were there as an active participant, you know, in, in, in the everyday life of the country. Um, I have many friends who are writers. In Zimbabwe, who are not writing not because they are unable to, but because life for them is just so difficult and it's a constant hassle, you know, to get to get food, to get things. So for them, it's a little bit difficult to take themselves out of their reality. Whereas I think for me, I'm I'm fortunate in that I've been able to sort of like look at the situation from the perspective of an outsider, and maybe that is what has enabled me to to write, mm. yeah.
0: I, d- I believe you've recently been in Zimbabwe yes. in the, the last few weeks. And I wondered, with your sort of writer's eyes, if you do you feel that the situation in the country is is such that, uh, as you were saying, you know, your friends who are living there have preoccupations, which mean they can't write. Is the situation kind of going beyond what you think writing can really readily cope with? Or is that is that, is that never the, the case,
1: really? You know, I'm not sure that there's ever a situation that writing cannot cope with i think what may be necessary is is distance you know i think uh, some of the things that are happening in zimbabwe are just so horrible that it might not be possible to write about them right now i mean i have this idea that zimbabwe is just the perfect place the perfect setting for a comic novel but the comedy is not just it's not that funny right now but maybe 20 years from now, it will be really brutally mm. funny um, because there, there, there are just so many things that are so totally absurd. You can only laugh. There's a sort of a, a thread of comedy in most of what is being done, mm. you know, by Zanupiev. Uh, but at the ma- moment, maybe it's not, it's not so funny and maybe what is necessary is maybe a bit of distance.
0: The humour was something that I did pick up on in the book that people tell jokes. In the same way that people in the Eastern Bloc used to tell jokes in order to have a sort of re- release valve against the, the terrible pressure that builds up, and the, you know, that I think you describe Zimbabwe as, a, as an amnesiac country, and I suppose humor is maybe one way of preserving memory, of sort mm. of encapsulating it, and mm. and having one little sort of act of resistance, even when you can't, um, you know, resist in any other way.
1: But that, but it, that's the thing. I mean, it's so true what you say, and I think the comparison with um, sort of the communist bloc is particularly opposite. I am always amazed at the number of AIDS jokes I hear in Zimbabwe. And now recently in December, because of the cholera epidemic, there are a number of cholera jokes. People do use humor as a sort of release from stress, as you say. But I also think that we're just very funny people. I just think Zimbabweans are incredibly funny. In fact, sometimes I think that we spend so much time, you know, amusing ourselves that we don't actually give much space to actually releasing ourselves from from our own oppression. But I, I think, you know, this is one of the things that has kept Zimbabwe normal. The fact that people can actually joke about situations that are, you know, at the bottom of it, not all that funny.
0: One of the stories which really st- stuck in my mind is about a young girl who was unhappy in love and attempted suicide and sent to a, a mental ward. And after I'd read that story... I then began to think maybe in some ways you can see the whole of Zimbabwe as a kind of madhouse because of because <laughs> of the way it's it's being run and I wondered if that was if that was something you were sort of conscious or was that was was that a sort of a subconscious and I suppose that's you know that's sort of taking humour beyond the point where it's funny and everything is sort of sort of become absurd is, is yeah. there any sort of validity in what well, I'm sort of grasping after
1: well I mean there is a there is certainly a. I wouldn't say all of Zimbabwe is uh, is a lunatic asylum, but there is certainly a, a lunacy to, to some of the decisions that have been taken to the point where you actually begin to worry for the sanity of the people who are taking them. There are all these, you know, e- economic policy flip-flops. I think for me, the most horrific stories, which are also quite funny in a way, but also really sort of like show this sort of like insane streak I'm talking about, are the stories of the political violence in, in, in June 2000 and 2008. There's one particular story that haunted me because I just could not believe that anybody could do that to, to another person. What happened is there were these terror camps that were set up in different villages. And there's a man apparently who was sent to one of these terror camps because he was suspected of being an MDC supporter. He was beaten up very badly to the point where he became unconscious and he was bleeding from almost every pore on his body and then the person who was in charge of the terror camp said you know it's time to call the tooth specialist And was, tooth specialist What's a tooth specialist and the tooth specialist was this young man maybe 18 you know 19 years old and what he did was he went and he bit the unconscious man on his back he bit him with his teeth Delivering such pain that the unconscious man actually got up and ran Mm. screaming With this man attached to his back This man still biting him and you have to ask yourself What is this? you know, this is This is this is you're going beyond a point where You know, you ask yourself. I mean, are we still humans? I mean, are we still are we still people? And, and this is the kind of insanity that I'm talking about. And by the way, all this is happening. And guess what the onlookers are doing. They're laughing, of course, because this is uproariously funny, mm. the sight of this bleeding man with, you know, a man biting his back. This is just one example of the many, mm. many examples that I managed to 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 dig out oh. on the some of the political violence
0: and i suppose I suppose that sort of ties back into what you were saying at the beginning about, people growing up not knowing anything different. You know, not, you, you talked about seeing changes and different sort of political waves following on, mm-hmm. but, but young people growing up in a, in, a, in a climate where such things become, if not normal, are no longer seen as quite so extraordinary as they, as they would have been in the past.
1: Exactly, there's a political scientist, uh, a wonderful man, Masipula Stole, who coined the phrase normalizing the abnormal. And this is what effectively is being done in Zimbabwe. We have normalized a situation that is completely abnormal. My little son, Kush, was five years old, spent about a year and a half with my parents in Zimbabwe. And when he came back to Switzerland, and I'd switch off the lights at night, he would say, oh, mommy, there's no electricity anymore. Because for him, what it meant when the switch was off was that there was no electricity. And then I I had to explain to him, no, 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 this is a switch. It actually switches off the electricity. It just doesn't disappear Mm. like it does in in area. But I I feel terribly sad when I think about children for whom, you know, it is perfectly normal to pay school fees and fuel coupons or, you know, to use barter as a form of, you know, um, of exchange. And it's it's just, this is now their life. This is what they Mm. know. This is the only thing they know. And, um... Yeah, so in, in a way I think our generation is a little bit privileged because we've had we've seen what what Zimbabwe could have been like. We've seen what 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 it what it was like in, you know, in in the early years of of the country and how optimistic everybody was and but of course that wasn't really a complete reality either. Because the very same things that were going on in June 2008 were also happening in another part of the country in, in around, you know, Matabeleland with the Matebele Land massacres. Only, of course, we didn't know about it either. So it makes me wonder, maybe actually the whole country is a mirage. Maybe it has always been a mirage. Because even in times when some of us were happy and hopeful, there were other people who were experiencing the horror that, you know, the entire country is now experiencing.
0: I also wanted to ask you about the first story in the collection at the End of the last post, because what I really liked about that was you had chosen somebody as an outsider, South African, as the narrating voice, and yet she was very much woven into the fabric of the regime but could see them, you know, from the inside and from the outside. Tell me tell me how you um, how you developed that idea. How did you come up with that?
1: Actually, this uh, woman, this narrator, she's, she's not alone in being a foreign woman married to a Zimbabwean politician. There are quite a lot of them, and this is where I got the idea from because... Um, a lot of current ministers and, you know, Politburo members were in exile during the 70s. And they were in exile in, you know, places like Jamaica and Europe and South Africa and in Zambia. No, not, not South Africa, sorry, in Zambia and Mozambique and that kind of thing. And they met local women there and they married them. And the, this is one of the absurdities of, of PF that some of the ministers with the most rabid anti-white sentiments are married to white women you know so this is one of the one of the, th- the things that struck me and i wondered you know what would it be like for an outsider who's now really given up her in her whole life in the country as she was born in How, what would be what would it be like for that person to be married to a hazanu pf top heavyweight who's, who dies suddenly and she's left with nothing really because she can't go back home and yet this is not really a home how does she negotiate that situation and then of course uh, I actually wrote this story I started writing it on Remembrance Day 2006 on the 11th of November because I heard that bugle you know it's, it's just a wonderful sound very very sad very haunting and it's a bugle that is very very familiar to anyone who's grown up in the commonwealth because that's a the last post is a it's a very familiar tune and i immediately started thinking about hero's acre it's a sound that you know we we hear almost every year when mm. a hero dies and is buried and the president says his his uh, says the eulogy so i started thinking about that and that's how the story was born mm. and then of course there are all these rumors about how uh, half the people who are supposed to be buried at Heroes' Acre are actually not buried there so I started to play with that idea a little bit
0: maybe, maybe Madhouse is not the right sort of metaphor for me to reach for but suddenly absurdity there's definitely yes. a current of absurdity yes. in a lot of the things that get done in, in this book
1: yes absolutely I mean there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of pomp and you know and s- ceremony uh, sort of associated with the zanopia funerals and th- there's a lot of fuss that is being there's a lot of fuss that is made over all these ceremonies where there's a there's a core of emptiness to them and this is i think what I was trying to show in this mm. in the story and also I, I wanted to look at zimbabwe from the perspective of a supporter of a zanopia supporter mm. because i think it's 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 so easy to to look at it from the human rights angle and the people are dying angle. I mean, that's pretty obvious. But I wanted to do something a little bit more different and look at, you know, what could be the motivations for somebody to actually support a regime like this? Because I think once you understand that psychology, you might be able to find ways of defeating it.
0: Something not so intimately connected with the, the political regime in Zimbabwe is the the sexual politics between men yeah. and women in the book. And the view that I got from it was quite bleak, really, that men tend to have sex at every opportunity and AIDS is the price and the price is often paid by women and women have to put up with pretty poor treatment at the hands of these men who've, you know, keeping mistresses or sleeping with prostitutes.
1: Well, it's it's interesting you say that because uh, one of the... There's a doctor, I was column I liked in, in the Herald who had this line that I... I really liked, and I thought it was very true. He said, um, "At the vanguard of the AIDS epidemic in Zimbabwe is an army of married men. We have a system of polygamy in Zimbabwe. There's official polygamy where a man is actually allowed to have more than one wife, and then there's the unofficial polygamy where a man gets married in church, but he doesn't quite want to give up, you know, the traditional perks, you know, the perks mm-hmm. of being a traditional African male. So he has a one woman on the side and the woman on the side is usually called a small house or imbadiki and in addition to the small house he usually has one or two girlfriends as well and then there's his secretary at work Mm. and this is what I'm trying to to show in this book as well that you know we have all these economic problems created I think uh, mainly because of a corrupt and inept regime but also we have deeper problems, deeper social problems, which, curiously enough, this government was trying to address. And this is one of the ironies that the Mugabe regime actually ushered in an era of sexual equality for women. Until 1980, black women were not considered capable of entering into contracts on their own behalf. They had to You had to do it through your father or through your husband if you were married. And because of the Legal Age of Majority Act, any person in Zimbabwe, ...attained majority at the age of 18, and that had a ripple effect on the laws that affected women. And then we had, uh, recently in 2007, there was a new domestic violence act that, that was introduced... ...because domestic violence is a very big problem in Zimbabwe. And these are all acts introduced by by this regime that, you know, is... Otherwise, so bad for the country. So again, these are some of the the curiosities of Zimbabwe. But yes, you're absolutely right. I think that we do have a problem in the way that men view women in Zimbabwe, and uh, many of the stories that are that that I write about come from sort of my my observation of the inequality between men and women mm. in, in Zimbabwe. And I think this is something that. We are going to have to think about even after we attain this you know glorious paradise because it's a it's an issue that is common to all societies and Zimbabwe is, is really not unique. Yeah.
0: I, I suppose what I'm saying is I thought it'd be a pity if your book was seen merely as sort of symptomatic or merely expressive of some of the effects of Mugabe's regime but in fact it went much much further oh, yeah. and, and said things which you know, uh, uh, about relationships between families and yes. men and women and all sorts of other things.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, there there's conflict between brothers and sisters, there's, you know, conflict between husbands and wives, there's jealousies, there's, you know, ambitions that are not fulfilled. And all it is, is that this is taking place against the backdrop of, you know, hyperinflation and political sort of uh, strangulation of, of Mugabe, Zimbabwe. But otherwise, these are just stories that could happen anywhere, really, you know, they're just stories about people, the setting might be a little bit different to what the average reader knows. But these are still the stories about human beings yeah. trying to negotiate what it means to be human.
0: And I understand you're working on a novel at the moment. Is it also set in contemporary Zimbabwe?
1: The novel is very interesting because it is sort of set in the past, not the very distant past, but in 1980s Zimbabwe. I want to look at sort of racial tensions, in the country because uh, racial tensions are part of the reason why zimbabwe is is where it is today but i wanted to look at it from a more interest Oh, maybe not so much more interesting but from a slightly different angle in that the protagonist the the character the, the narrator sorry of my of my novel is an albino woman she's neither black nor white the blacks call her whites the whites don't accept her as white so i just wanted to see what You know, somebody like that would make of the racial politics in sort of post-independent Zimbabwe.
0: I really liked the difference of vantage point you had in this book. The narrators come from all sorts of different strata of society and different genders and different ages. And you're obviously interested in about what you can do by taking a a narrator with an unusual uh, vantage point on a situation.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's exactly it. I, I, I always think that situations look so different depending on who's... telling the story i mean if the the sound of the last post you know the story of the zanope of widow it could have been told from the perspective of the grave digger it could also have been told you know from the perspective of the president himself every story has multiple multiple viewpoints i mean there's a there's a line i like that there there are three sides to every story there's your side my side and then there's the truth you know and i think in having these different viewpoints you can maybe get at What is the essential truth of a situation? But then again, you maybe can't because each truth will depend on who's telling the story.